For over 35 years, Seelong Medical Systems has been bringing quality hyperbaric oxygen therapy equipment to the healthcare market. Now, with a global pandemic in full swing, that same equipment has been repurposed to treat patients suffering from COVID-19. Simple, effective, and easy to use, the Seelong Series 5000 Non-Invasive Ventilation Hood System offers an effective next step in treating patients who need respiratory assistance but aren't quite ready for intubation. When it comes to treatment and transport, make sure you've got the peace of mind that comes along with having the best equipment for both your patient and your staff. For questions or to place an order, you can contact C-Long on the internet at www.sea-long.com. What is a lighthouse? It is a tower with a bright light at the top. Located at an important or dangerous place. The main purpose of a lighthouse is to serve as a navigational aid and to warn of dangerous areas. Welcome to the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast. Illuminating the darkness of current EMS clinical practice with the bright light of science. Here are your hosts, Dr. Jeff Jarvis and Mike Verkest. Hey, everybody. Mike Verkest, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for hanging out with us on a beautiful, at least in the Pacific Northwest, Saturday it's pretty, night. It's pretty nice here in Texas, too. Is it? Yeah. 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 It's, it's been a little bit, uh, it's been a little bit rainy, which is pretty typical for us, you know, but, it, you know, Today, a little partly cloudy, about 65 degrees, not bad. It got up to uh, mid-80s here in Central Texas. Wow. Uh, we were doing great in the 60s and 70s, and then uh, this little hurricane came into the oh. Gulf and just started messing things up. Yeah, well. So considering it just made it a little warmer for us and didn't flood us like our colleagues to the east, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to be quiet about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, appreciate everyone jumping on tonight and spending a little time with us. We're going to talk some TXA and TBI, something uh, this study is actually a little bit near and dear to my heart. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but we're going to do things a little bit different. But first thing I need to know, what's in your glass? Let's get the important stuff out of the way first. Right? Yeah, we, we've got to. So I got my Aggie glass here with my Diet Dr. Pepper. Okay. Now I'm assuming that's not the one you're talking about. No, but I've got one of those too. I've got a little Diet Pepsi going. All right. Then this is probably the one you're looking at. Yeah, I got one of those. It's uh, it's my throwdown. It's Johnny Walker Double Black. Um, nothing out with when I saw, What are you drinking, Mike? Because that looks expensive all the way from Texas. So my good buddy, Eric Bauer, most of you guys have heard of that guy. For my birthday, he got me a little bottle of George T. Stag, which... That's some, that's some dollars on that, right? And so he sent that bad boy to me. So I figured tonight I'm going to pour a little bit of that. So that's what yeah. I've got going. It's so good. You know, had I non- known that you were going to bring out the good stuff, yeah. I might have had to go back here. Oh, boy. What do we got? I can't I can't hardly see it. You, you know, on our screens doing this live. It's a little like, small. Isn't we have it? like a thumbnail this big that we're trying to look at. Okay. Well, it's Garrison Brothers. Okay. So I never had this before. And it turns out this was um, Dr. Craig Manifold's favorite bourbon. And uh, obviously, we, we just lost him. 
Yes, and we did. As a tribute to my friend, I had to go get some Garrison Brothers and oh, cool. drink to him. Nice. Yep. So I may have to have some of that later on. Well, let's do that. Well, for those of you that are watching, um, again, thank you for hanging out with us. We're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to try something new as we're always doing something new. It seems like here. Would you say that we're trying to, we're trying to just do it a little bit different. We're going to, we're trying to find ourselves, Mike, you know, yeah. well, we're, uh, we're in our podcast adolescence. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're always just trying to figure out what, what do people like? So one of the things that we do know people like is we know they like having guests. Guests is awesome. Yeah. But for this particular podcast, this was another Vercast wildfire delay weird situation because uh, the last EMS Lighthouse project that came out was on um, of the uh, hyperemesis syndrome. Well, this podcast was actually done way before that, but since the evacuation and all the other stuff that was going on, um, we wanted to fill the void a little bit. So thanks for jumping in and doing that. But this one's been sort of ready-ish, if you will. Um, Ish. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. So the the timing on this, um, we're, again, doing something a little bit different. We are mm-hmm. trying to... Mike, you had this great idea that we wanted to do video podcast. We're hearing yeah. that people want video podcasts, not just yeah. audio. Yeah. Ones. So we choice. tried to elevate our game a little bit. And yeah. so I went and recorded an interview mm-hmm. with Dr. Jason Pickett just down to my south. And we talked about all things TXA. Um, the intent when I scheduled that interview was we were going to talk about this paper. A yes. little birdie had told me this paper was going to be published on a certain date. So and you I, believe I, I was ready for it. And then COVID got in the way, at least that's the excuse. It got pushed back about a month and a half. So I was sitting on this interview with Pickett and we didn't have the paper. So we couldn't go live with the Pickett interview because there was no paper. Um, <laughs> you sort of need the paper. You sort of need the paper. You need the paper. So we got the paper. Finally, it published it's, uh, it's the rock on TXA is the way I'm thinking about it. It's the TXA trial in TBI done in the resuscitations outcome consortium. So it was the last hurrah TXA. And uh, so what we're going to do, because we have been inspired by our friend Hillary Gates at EMS World Expo about the idea that you can do both pre-recorded content and live content. Yeah. We're about to roll the pre-recorded stuff. We will continue to monitor the Facebook channel, the Twitter channel, the YouTube channel, probably a couple other channels that I haven't uh, thought about here. And we will answer questions as we go. We'll write down the good ones. And then when we come back, I want to hear about your experience because your agency was actually in this trial. We, we did. I had the opportunity to work with uh, a lot of people from uh, Rock and uh, get some training developed. And then, so I've got some little stories to tell you about the way. So outstanding. You should got we, things to say. So should we roll the beautiful bean footage? Oh man, you took the words right out of my mouth. Roll it. All right, here we go. Stand by. Dr. Pickett. Dr. Jarvis. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. First thing we have to clarify, we cannot touch each other. We are six feet apart. Yes, we have proper social distancing yes. here. We have been screened for symptoms. We have a very cool little face temperature screener here at the wonderful Wilco EMS. We'd like to make sure nobody has fever. Yes, also the Wilco EMS training center here smells like a Yankee candle shop. Uh, 
What the hell is a Yankee? Oh, it's yes. That would be. I'm going to blame that on Karen and Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. Matt Matt's office smells like a little girl's office. <laughs> so, well, Pickett, you've been on the pod before, but let's just go ahead and uh, cover some things again. Who are you? How'd you get here? And what the hell are you doing now? Uh, so I'm the deputy medical director for the Austin Travis County EMS System Office of the Medical Director, and uh, so. I have been in that role for about three years now, came here from Dayton, Ohio. And uh, now in addition to the EMS duties, I am also the alternate public health authority. Uh, Since we have a little pandemic going on, uh, that's eating up a whole lot of my time as well. So that's pretty much it. I I got here because I answered an ad in an AMSP. They said, Hey, we're looking for uh, we're looking for a new doc. Uh, Interestingly, 20-some-odd years ago, uh, when I was a paramedic in Charlotte, two friends of mine, John Mudge and Dave Williams, came here to Austin to be paramedics. And they said, you got to come here. And I said, I thought thought my life was going in a d- different direction. I was going to head off to medical school. So it's kind of funny that uh, now, nearly a quarter century later, uh, you're back. I'm, I'm here. Uh, and I still get to work with John, if, if yeah. not David. And Dave Williams is still here, too. He He's kind of doing some QI stuff now, but... He's the QI mogul. He's uh, he is, and uh, he's a he's a true believer in in QI for sure. Yeah. He's also a a true believer in Austin. He was very disappointed in me when he found out that I did not live within the Austin city limits. I see. Yeah, you're actually a Wilco resident. You live in Williamson County. I am, and uh, I've uh, I had the uh, unfortunate. Uh, luck to have uh, Wilco EMS attend to my wife and daughter after they were in a car accident yesterday. I'm very, very grateful to Wilco EMS and and also Sam Bass Fire Department and uh, Wilco Sheriff for coming out and helping them out. Uh, glad they're they're okay. Everything's yeah. good. You know, so, thank God. So uh, it's kind of a nasty wreck, but uh, they walked away with scrapes and bruises. So uh, they, I was very, very happy that. Uh, your guys showed up and, uh, of course, comported themselves with the utmost professionalism and and compassion and, and uh, bedside manner. So uh, they impressed us greatly. And as you know, that's not an easy thing to do for right. me. So yeah, I was very happy about them. Well, first off, I'm glad your family is nice and healthy and uh, uninjured. So that's good. Uh, second, you know, I know my guys are good and they, we really do pride ourselves on customer service and not being a dick. Um, but it is always nice to hear, you know, that, um, you see your guys do great, but then when you hear it from other people, it's so much better. Oh, for sure. Well, so I do think we might need to explain the attire. <sighs> I feel like a banker <laughs> in this, uh, a banker. Uh, yeah. You definitely uh, look like so, a banker. Yeah. Of you some said sort. I, you always wear like suits and ties in your videos and stuff. And, and I never do. Usually when I'm doing my podcasts, I'm sitting in my bedroom closet at home. In your underwear. Uh, and uh, Well, we won't talk about the attire that I'm wearing at that time. You or, don't always dress up. Uh, so no, no, I, I am definitely an anti dress up. So this is, uh, you, yeah, I, fi- I figured if I'm going on your podcast, I have to wear a tie. So we're in a tie. There you go. We are. There you go. So we had this social media thing where I think I did a video and I wore a tie and you did a video and didn't. And either you started giving me grief or I started giving you grief. Um, well, the fact is, is that I figured you might wear a tie today. So I couldn't let you beat me. So I had to wear a tux, but it's actually a Texas tux, which means <laughs> I have jeans and boots on. It is a very Texas tux. Um, 
So, but it's it's a good look. Well, I need, I, I need that. to I need to co-op this look. I, you can even if you're you know maybe Ohio, you can learn Texas looks. I am I'm not a native Texan. I am learning, however. That's all right. Well, you got here as fast as you could. Hey, let's talk some medicine, shall we? All right, let's do it. So yes. let's talk some transix sem transix transix txx transix yes magic fairy dust that we give to trauma patients so what is it what is it and how does it work so txa is a synthetic derivative of the amino acid lysine and uh the way that it works in folks who are bleeding is that it helps to inhibit the hyperfibrinolysis that occurs with serious hemorrhage so our, our bodies are really good at managing small injuries. Uh, and you have a small injury, your uh, your endothelium of your blood vessels is exposed to uh, something that it's not supposed to be, like the air, uh, and you form clots. But then your body works on breaking those clots down as it, as it heals itself. So it's really good at managing minor injury. Our bodies are not so great at managing catastrophic injury. And when you have large-scale uh, hemorrhage, a hemorrhagic shock, then those various systems, they get uh, significantly out of whack. So you make clots, but then you start breaking down those clots too early. You release TPA, a tissue plasminogen activator, and uh, that's uh, released from the endothelium of the vessels. And so that converts to, to uh, plasmin. Uh, so you've got the tissue plasminogen activator. The plasminogen becomes plasmin and grabs on fibrin and starts breaking down clots. So, so TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, activates plasmin, and plasmin is what starts to break down the clots. Correct. Okay. Yes. Got it. So you start breaking down the clots and, and on a wide scale, but before you're ready to, you know, while you're still suffering from the hemorrhagic shock. And this leads to a relative coagulopathy. Now, this generally only happens in folks who are the most severely injured. Uh, so about 4% of trauma patients who okay. are uh, severely injured will – or 4% of patients who are injured fall into that severely injured uh, category. But a, a significant number of them will be coagulopathic okay. uh, when they uh, are, arrive at the hospital. So the TXA, the idea is that we get at that hyperfibrinolysis. It's not – it's not a volume expander. It doesn't replace the blood that you've lost. It doesn't uh, it reverse the acidosis that comes with uh, the trauma. It doesn't reverse that hypothermia that comes with the trauma. But it may help with that coagulopathy that uh, you have with trauma. So it uh, it doesn't really – so like TPA can promote clot breakdown. I have a tendency to think about TXA as an anti-TPA. So – it doesn't really promote clotting, but what it does instead is breaks, stops the breakdown of the clots so that you can get some more clots there. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if this is one of these things that's always fascinating to me when you understand the mechanism and then look at what actually happens in real life. So if you're thinking about the mechanism, the only thing TPA is doing is inhibiting clot breakdown and it's not promoting clots, then Clots like DVTs or PEs, uh, venous thromboembolisms, should not be an issue. And yet in some of the studies, we do see a slight increase in um, clots. This is one of these things where you know the mechanism says the bumblebee can't fly, but the real-life science says, well, that's nice, but you might want to tell the bumblebee. 
So there was an, an increase in clotting in these uh, venous thromboembolic events uh, in the MATTERS study, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the military application of tranexamic acid in trauma and emergency resuscitation and surgery. Not that that uh, was a strained acronym at all. Uh, seriously, like yeah, it's like SHIELD. That's right, <laughs> like, right. You got to work on that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in that, they did, uh, they did find that there was a higher rate of thromboembolic events, but these were also very seriously injured patients yep. and uh, their mortality rate was like 23%. So yeah. uh, these, these were very badly injured patients, patients in whom you would expect a higher rate of thromboembolic events uh, in general. Uh, they have found that it, with the crash two data, right. that the tranexamic acid, if administered late uh, after three hours after injury, then it really didn't seem to help them in, and there was a trend towards harm right. in more embolic events. Uh, your body's managing clots all the time in this similar fashion, You're, whether it's a DVT or a PE or uh, anything. It, you build the clots, you break down the clots, and, and your body, uh, your body's managing that. So it's, it, it doesn't surprise me entirely that, that you would detect some of those clotting events after receiving TXA. But overall, the, uh, the, the concern, the harm that's caused by it is so small and uh, it's so unlikely that it's, it, you, you look at, well, really some it's decent evidence that might right? help and there's not really a whole lot, a lot of harm to yeah. it. Nothing in medicine is truly harmless, but, right. uh, but this is pretty close. Well, oxygen, oxygen never hurt. Oh, oh maybe yeah. not. Sea <laughs> uh, collars, sea collars. No, no. no. Backboards. No, Cause cancer. Backboards cause cancer. Damn. Uh, Ketamine. Ketamine cures what ails us. But if you talk to some of our, you talk to some of our colleagues at the hospital. Why would you do that? They, I, 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 well, unfortunately they dumb my phone numbers. They call me. I have (laughs) to listen to it. It's it's an unfortunate thing. So I was forced um, to intubate that patient. Yes. I came and tied your hand behind your back. All right. So uh, TXA. We said that it um, inhibits clot breakdown, so we're giving it to people who are bleeding. The CRASH-2 trials matters. These studies were done in severely injured trauma patients that were felt to need massive transfusions. Um, So they gave that to them, and uh, we've looked at CRASH-2. We've looked at CRASH-3. CRASH-3 really kind of helps us understand the mechanism because if you look at overall – not a whole lot of mortality benefit when given in patients, all patients with TBIs. But if you exclude the patients who already have a head full of blood, they have one or both pupils that are unequal or they have a GCS of three, basically they already have a massive hematoma, there was no benefit. But in the patients with mild to moderate TBI without um, any uh, unreactive pupils or GCS of, I believe it was like nine to 10, there was a mortality benefit. So basically what we're saying is if you already have a brain full of clot, the TXA isn't going to be able to help. Well, I think that you, um, if the, if the horses have already left the barn, exactly, then it's not going to help. We found that right. in the Valley study of TXA where they said, well, there's no benefit and there's harm. Well, right. they administered the TXA after the patient had been uh, transported, resuscitated and operated on. Yep. And then they, they, gave them TXA and said, look, it doesn't work. And right. 
It's like letting the person drown and then throwing a life preserver out in the water and say, see, they don't work. Absolutely. Like, they do work if you, if you do it in the, at the right time. Of course she was a witch. She didn't float. Uh, <laughs> she's a witch. That's right. So we're talking about TXA in massive trauma. What are some other uses for TXA? The TXA has been used for a long time in orthopedic surgery and obstetrical surgery and cardiovascular surgery. Uh, it's one of the WHO essential medications uh, for uh, because postpartum hemorrhage and maternal hemorrhage is a leading cause of death worldwide in women, 100,000 women a year dying of that. And uh, so it's even been used in dental surgery and folks who have uh, in, uh, inherited coagulopathies like hemophilia. Yep. Uh, so it's been around for a long time. We've only more recently uh, rediscovered it, if you will, when it comes to trauma. And the, the Crash 2 study was a, big, uh, was a big part of that. Now, Crash 2 has its issues, and this is where a lot of my surgical colleagues take some issues with. Yeah, with, it was Africa. Like, oh, yeah, it wasn't here, and half the patients didn't go to the operating room and this. But all the subgroup analyses showed that in severely injured patients, yeah. it did help. Yep. Uh, and uh, the... You've got a 20,000 patient study, multi-center, multi-national study. And uh, I I think sometimes we go a little bit too far and say, well, I don't know if it applies here. Like, okay, look, what are you looking for? Right. Yeah. So the analysis of that data has really helped. The MATTERS <laughs> studies uh, helped a lot as well. Uh, and uh, so the WOMAN trial, yep. uh, so a study of maternal hemorrhage, uh, which also showed a benefit and uh, Lancet published a, a review of those as well. Not only found that there was benefit, but that the benefit uh, of TXA decreased 10% every 15 minutes that administration was delayed. And this puts us in our wheelhouse. I was going to say, that sounds like an EMS drug to me. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yep. Uh, and this is why I'm a big proponent for, for doing it pre-hospital. Uh, because you can have a short transport time. Right, you get them to the hospital, but there's a hundred other things that are happening. I can't guarantee that that's going to and a hundred other patients right. that are being taken care of. Yeah. Even if you have a, a well functioning trauma team, yeah, then TXA is really an afterthought, and and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the big thing that they're concentrating on. Well, let's get the chest X ray, let's get them intubated, sure. let's get the blood hung, let's do all of this stuff, and we're yeah. not really thinking TXA in that in that case. So this is where we can we can help to prepare that patient, uh, start that resuscitation in the field. Absolutely. So you mentioned postpartum hemorrhage, uh, obviously massive trauma. So some of the other places that it's been used, one of my favorite TXA studies ever is out of Tehran, and it's for nosebleed. Um, So we actually use that in our system. Um, I started using it in the emergency department. Um, I haven't packed a nose. Even patients on Plavix and all these other platelet killers TXA works. Um, I just saturate some gauze, put that in there, put pressure on it. Works really, really well. Um, I use it. You mentioned dental surgery. I actually use it for folks who come in with bleeding, uh, like oral bleeds. Um, I'll get the, um, well, it's not quick clot. What's the hemostatic um, dressing? Uh, Surgicel. Surgicel, yeah. And then I will, you know how you have to like do the little mixing of the stuff? I'll actually, instead of using saline, I just put TXA in there. The big question is about uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, One of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is we were talking about TXA because I heard from a little birdie that y'all are giving it differently than we are. 
So we give the drug one gram in the field, and that's followed by a gram infusion over the next eight hours in the hospital, which is exactly how it was given in crash two and crash three. How are y'all giving it? So we're giving it two grams IV push. Okay. And uh, we're not slamming it like a dentistine. It's a slow IV push. But when you look back on the, the precautions regarding TXA, it's, uh, I think that, that uh, a warning from the manufacturer came in a long time ago, and everybody just keeps quoting that. Kind of like QT prolongation with Reparadol? Exactly, uh, exactly. So that you've got that, that caution from the manufacturer, and everybody says, oh, yes, TXA can cause hypotension post-administration. I've not seen it. And uh, talking to others who have looked at this literature fairly extensively, they haven't seen it either. Uh, this was given uh, IV push in the MATTERS study. They did not appreciate any uh, hypotension after giving that. So uh, I tried to do a literature search and find where this might have come mm. from. I can't find anything that says that TXA will cause you to be hypotensive yeah. uh, after pushing it. And Couldn't the, even trace it back to some dogs giving huge doses of epinephrine in the early 1900s? Uh, I, I, I'll have to dig deeper into the literature to, to, to do that. I don't, I don't have that kind of time. Jeff. Uh, I see. I see. <laughs> um, but your nerd credentials uh, are in question. Uh, well, they, they should be. Look, I'm, I'm a busy, I'm a doer. All That's right. right. I'm a thinker. I'm a doer. <laughs> I mean, you have a leather coat. Uh, Come on now. Yeah. Uh, this is so. awesome. <laughs> well, uh, so tell me about your, let's talk some practical stuff about, uh, the two grams. So, um, you just mix it up. You give it as a slow push. Um, you said you have not seen any um, any practical things, so certainly no hypotension. Um, anything else you've noticed about it? No, I have not uh, heard about any adverse reactions as far as uh, uh, allergic reaction, allergic yeah. type reactions, or uh, flushing, or or redness, or anything. Okay. Now, granted, if they're getting it, they're probably pretty badly hurt, yeah. and uh, so there's a, a lot of a, a lot of uh, confounding uh, factors that are in there with that too, but. Uh, hanging a bag of TXA uh, for 10 minutes yeah. is not terribly practical in operational environment. So you're in the, in the EMS environment, you've got somebody who's that badly hurt and you've got a hundred things you need to be doing. So right. um, by giving it a uh, slow IV push and do the two grams, then they don't have to do that at the hospital. Uh, now what happens if they give it, they didn't know that EMS gave it and they gave more TXA. Right. Who cares? It's given yeah. like five grams in right. cardiothoracic surgery. So you, yeah. you can't really overdose somebody uh, that way well and your point there i think is a really good one about you have you there are two of you in the back of the truck you have an awful lot of things to do if you have your partner in the back of the truck with you and you just don't have time to mix the drip and that's what was so appealing to me about this two gram bolus Um, so there is a rock trial uh, multi-center uh, resuscitations outcome consortium, so the last dying breath of the ROC uh, consortium. And they looked or are looking at exactly this. The results of this study should be out shortly, hopefully in time for this podcast. We'll keep our fingers crossed. And they compared the traditional approach of giving it, one gram um, over about 10 minutes followed by the next gram over the next eight hours in the hospital versus two gram bolus and what I love about it is they also include a placebo arm. So hopefully we'll have that study and we'll be able to talk about those results. Well, Dr. Pickett, thank you so much uh, for coming. I really appreciate You do have to tell us what was the – you got the wife beater, you got the tie, you have the leather outfit. 
Um, tell me where you got the leather outfit from and what the, the costume was. Okay, so, well, first of all, I'll say this is a reference. If you've not seen the movie Major League, uh, yes, Charlie okay. Sheen, Tom Berenger, yep. uh, Corbin Burnson. Yeah, if you haven't seen that, then uh, fix yourself. You got to uh, see. I, I was see thinking it. about that the other day when we watched uh, um, Tony Fauci throw out the pitch. Um, the mascot didn't go down like it did in the movie. That was pretty good. Um, okay, so aside from that, you were that's the look you were going for. So the uh, yeah, this costume is uh, from Halloween, and uh, my daughter is a big fan of Descendants, uh, the uh, series of three movies from Disney, uh, and uh, she wanted to be Mal, and so I decided to be Hades, her father. Awesome. Uh, so that. That's and you, you from. told me you did up the blue hair and everything. Oh yeah, the whole thing. I actually made this whole thing. And, awesome. And so, uh, yeah, worked uh, worked quite a bit on it. If you're so. going to do it, all in. Much Absolutely. like a, not quite a Texas tuxedo, of course, but not no, bad. this is this is true. But I'll tell you what: if um, if you happen to find yourself uh, on stage in front of a whole bunch of your EMS providers uh, as a cheerleader to f- show support for the Austin Femmes and, and yeah, uh, yeah. their competition team. Uh, then you, you know you, you have to go all out, and that was the last tuxedo that I've worn is my okay. white tiger tuxedo. Oh, that was an impressive tuxedo. Thank Had you. the hat and everything. Yes, yes. Also put that together myself. Awesome. Uh, just because, Jason. Seriously, man. Thank you so much. This was fun. I appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks much, man. Appreciate you having me here. Hey guys, so I probably ought to start explaining what I'm doing shooting outside. So Christy and I just moved to a new house. I'm still setting up my office where I'm going to be doing most of my recording. It has really tall ceilings and a tile floor, and there's currently nothing on those walls, which makes it an acoustic nightmare. Sound waves just bouncing everywhere. So being a good paramedic and a good EMS doc, I improvised. I'm shooting from my back porch. And because of that, you may hear some outside sounds. You definitely may hear some outside sounds from over there because, oh, my neighbor kind of has this I'm about to mow the lawn look right now. And what's going on with holding the mic? Well, I tried this with a lapel mic, and it just picked up too much noise. There are birds everywhere. I got a little waterfall back there, and you get all sorts of waterfall sounds, and What's with the phone? Well, this is how I'm controlling the camera. All right, guys, enough of that. Let's get on with the paper, shall we? It's finally here. The paper I've been waiting to publish for a long time. Now, like many folks, I was a bit disappointed at the lack of mortality benefit in moderate to severe TBIs that was seen in Crash 3, particularly because of the overall benefit in Crash 2 in patients with hemorrhagic shock. And then I was really intrigued when Dr. Jason Pickett told me, Jason, J- I don't know who Jason is, Jason Pickett, Pickett, you know, the white tiger from Austin. He told me he was using a two gram bolus of TXA instead of the one plus one, the one gram bolus in the field plus one gram infusion over the next hour in the hospital. And that's what Crash 2 did, what Crash 3 did, and what most EMS protocols did. And I like that simplicity. So when he and my Oregon buddies told me there was a rock trial underway that looked at TBI and other dosing, I was really excited. Well, the wait is over, and the paper was published this week in JAMA, September 8th, 
to be exact. The, uh, the title is The Effect of Out-of-Hospital Tranexamic Acid Versus Placebo on Six-Month Functional Neurologic Outcomes in Patients with Moderate or Severe Traumatic Brain Injury. The lead author is Dr. Susan Rowell, and she has lots of co-authors from the Rock Network, including a couple of my friends, Neil Richmond and Mark Gamber. If y'all guys are listening, howdy. So this was a prospective multi-center randomized controlled trial of -of out-of-hospital patients with TBI. And there were 39 participating EMS agencies transporting to 20 trauma centers in both the U.S. and Canada. Now, inclusion criteria were patients 15 years old or older that the treating paramedics felt had a TBI. And that was from either blunt or penetrating trauma. Patients needed to have a GCS less than or equal to 12, not with any sedation, so just fresh, untreated TBIs. They needed to have at least one reactive pupil, a systolic blood pressure of 90 at the time of enrollment, IV access, and they needed to be able to get their treatment in less than two hours from the time of injury. So patients were excluded if the time of injury was either unknown or more than two hours, if they had a GCS of three with bilateral non-reactive pupils. And if you're wondering why that's important, go back to the podcast we did on CRASH-3. They also could not have a suspicion of seizure, MI, stroke, or be on dialysis, They could not have had CPR performed at any time. They couldn't have a burn of more than 20% BSA, and they could not be one of the protected Ps. Those are pediatric patients, prisoners, or pregnant patients. Now, consent was done under EFIC. That's the exception from informed consent. And that was done at the time of randomization and medication administration, But all patients or family members were later required to sign written consent as soon as possible once they got to the hospital. Now, there were two active intervention arms and one control arm. The intervention arms was a bolus-only group, and they received a single 2-gram bolus of TXA in the field. But they did follow that up with a placebo infusion over eight hours in the hospital. The maintenance group received a one-gram bolus in the field, followed by a one-gram infusion over eight hours in the hospital. And then finally, the control arm was a placebo arm. They got a placebo bolus and a placebo hospital infusion. Now, all of the study kits were contained in exactly identical kits, and each unique number or each individual kit had a unique number, and the contents of that kit were known only to the company that prepared those study kits. And that uh, randomization and the identity of what was in there was only opened up and revealed to the investigators after the trial was over, once they were, or I should say, after the analysis was done. Now, each EMS unit carried only one drug kit at a time, and they replaced it after each use. The kits were randomized, and it was done by a computer-generated numerical sequence, and the ratio was one to one to one. One bolus only to one maintenance to one placebo. Although there were three arms, that's two TXA intervention groups and one placebo control arm, the primary outcome was analyzed between a combination intervention group and placebo group. In other words, for the primary outcome, they looked just at TXA versus placebo, not how the TXA was given. 
They did, however, do some exploratory analysis on the three arms for some of the secondary outcomes. Now, speaking of outcomes, the primary outcome was functional neurologic outcome as measured by the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, or GOOSE, GOSSE, GAUSSE, I don't know how you say that. That's an eight-point scale with higher values correlating with better outcomes. So one is dead, two is a vegetative state, three and four are both severe disability, and anything above four is either moderate disability or full recovery. So the study dichotomized the Gossi group into two groups, either good, which is anything less than a four, I'm sorry, anything better than a four, or bad, and that is four or less. And I just love dichotomized variables because, I don't know, they're a lot easier for my little Aggie brain to understand. They had some secondary outcomes, and I mean a lot. 18 of them, in fact. Now, they didn't even bother to report on all of these in this trial because they're saving the lesser ones for future papers. Being good academics, they're going to keep going to this trial over and over again and getting more interesting papers out of it. Now, they really wanted to focus on this one just on the big title headlines. So they did report on the sub-secondaries, including 28-day mortality, six-month disability score, and whether there was progression of intracerebral hemorrhage. And they also report on adverse events. That's great, Jeff. Let's get to the bottom line. What did they find? Overall, this was a sick group. The overall average GCS was eight, and almost three-quarters were men. Now, that's not shocking because this is a trauma study and men are usually the ones doing the stupid shit that gets them involved in trauma. For some reason, women don't do that as often. So the overwhelming majority of trauma was blunt, about 97%, in fact. And most of that had something to do with a car, either a car crash or an auto ped. And over half of patients had some type of advanced airway placed in the field. Again, sick group. Now, they enrolled 966 patients for whom they had follow-up information on 85%. What does that mean? That means they lost 15% to follow-up, with a higher proportion being lost from the bolus group. The group that was lost to follow-up were less severely injured and had better outcomes at discharge. Both of these things are concerning and suggest that those without follow-up might have actually done better. Now, this means that the treatment groups, because they had more patients lost and those lost were doing better at discharge, might have actually had better results than are reported here. Now, they did try to control for this potential bias, and they did that by using something called multiple imputations. And basically, they assigned an outcome for the missing data based on how similar subjects with full data did. And just to make sure that this didn't bias the results, they completed a sensitivity analysis that did not use imputation. And the fortunate thing for us is both of those two analyses showed the same results. So the main headline result here, no difference in functional outcome at six months between TXA and placebo. And that outcome is reported in adjustable or adjusted absolute differences between the groups. So it's not odds ratios. It's what is the difference in functional outcome at six months between groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us the numbers, you say. All right, here you go. 
The TXA group had 65% favorable neurological outcome versus 62 in the placebo group. And that was not statistically significant. All right, that's kind of a bummer. Let's look at secondary outcomes. The one I was most interested in was 28-day mortality. It was 14% in the combined TXA group versus 17% in placebo. So mortality was higher with placebo, but the adjusted absolute difference was 2.9% lower with TXA. Again, not statistically significant. Now, when you broke it down by all three arms, meaning both dosing, dosing regimens plus control, there were no significant difference between any of them. Now, there was a pretty visible trend toward a better outcome with the bolus group compared to the maintenance and placebo group. The difference started really early on in the course of injury and persisted throughout the 28 days. Unfortunately, the confidence intervals overlapped for all of them, but a brief period of time around the first day or two. Now, what do I mean by this? What do I mean by visual? Take a look at figure two, which I'm going to put up here in the video version for the audio podcast. Check the show notes. I really think it's an important finding, so I want you to take a look. It suggests to me that the study, had the study been powered to detect a smaller difference, it might have been a positive outcome, showing better outcomes with the bolus dosing than either of the maintenance or placebo. And what you're seeing in this figure is mortality, and you see that both the maintenance and placebo group are pretty tightly connected and go up rapidly, but the bolus group is quite a bit lower. And that's the reason I think maybe had we powered this differently, we might have seen better results. Just as important as benefit in any trial is harm. Interestingly, there were more thrombotic events in both the placebo arm and bolus arm than the maintenance arm. And that just seems odd to me. There were more seizures in the bolus arm than either the maintenance or placebo arm, which at least makes a little sense. But all other adverse events were similar between the three groups. Now, finally, large trials like this include several predefined exploratory subgroups that they know they want to study, but they just can't power the study to detect. In CRASH-3, the overall study was negative, but they spun it in a positive light based on a subgroup that showed improved outcomes in the group with mild to moderate TBI. In this study, they also looked at the subgroup that had blood on CT. So remember, in CRASH-3, everybody had blood on CT because that was an inclusion criteria requirement. This trial is a pre-hospital trial. They couldn't rely on CT imaging. If you go back to the inclusion criteria, patients needed to be altered with a suspected TBI. I think we've been, we have all been doing this long enough to notice there's a distinct overlap between TBI and intoxication. I likely think that some patients that got enrolled were actually intoxicated. That just made them look like they had more severe head injuries. And the truth is, we ought to treat them as though they have more severe head injuries. And we're only going to know the truth once they get to the ER and we get a CT scan on them. Now, in this trial, only 58% of the patients who were enrolled actually ended up having a bleed on their initial scan. Now, that's not a flaw in the design. I actually think it's a good reflection of the reality of field medicine. 
All studies, no matter how good they are, and this was a well-done study, have limitations. So when considering the lack of an overall benefit, the largest limitation in this study may have been that they underpowered it to detect differences in TXA and placebo. Now, they powered it to look for a 7% higher functional neurologic benefit at six months. And that seems like a pretty high hurdle to me. The six-month outcome seems a bit harsh for pre-hospital intervention. There's a lot of stuff that happens between the intervention and, well, the next six months. The 7% difference also seems a bit high. I'm not aware of any prior studies suggesting such a large difference exists. If they had instead used a smaller difference or used 28-day head injury-related mortality like Crash 3 did, then I think they likely would have required, well, I know they would have required more patients, but they might have been able to detect a smaller difference. So how big of a difference is important? Well, in cardiac arrest research, the general consensus for the minimal clinically important difference is about 2%. There is no difference for this in TBI, and that's something that Drs. Cohn and Spate point out in their really nice editorial that accompanies this paper. And if you're going to read this paper, do yourself a favor and read their editorial as well. Next, that pesky 15% of patients lost to follow-up is definitely a limitation. Now, maybe that biased the results too. While I'm far from a methodologist, I feel a little bit more comfortable that this wasn't that big of a factor based on the lack of a difference between the imputed approach to analysis and the non-imputed analysis. Maybe that's short-sighted. Maybe Rimley is throwing something at this podcast right now, but that's where I am after my first read-through. Great, Jarvis. You're droning on and on like usual. What's your bottom line for the paper? Well, let me put it in context and say that overall, I think TXA had a small but real mortality benefit in patients with hemorrhagic shock that was seen in CRASH-2. And there was a benefit in a subgroup of mild to moderate TBI patients in CRASH-3. Both of those are important. CRASH-2 and CRASH-3 showed no increased adverse events. And while this trial did show small increase in seizures and thrombotic events, there was no dose-response relationship to it, which makes me confused. And I really think that there was probably a survival bias at work here. And what I mean by that is patients who got the bolus seem to be alive more later on. And if you live longer, you're more likely to get adverse events. TBI is both common and severe. We see a lot of it. It causes massive harm every year. Because of that, we change our framework for risk-benefit analysis a little bit. There is little harm documented overall with TXA, and TXA is cheap. We have evidence that it works in massive hemorrhage and some signal of benefit in isolated TBI. So, what's my take? If I have any doubt that a patient in front of me may have both a TBI and non-ICH bleeding, meaning they're bleeding from a leg wound or something, I'm going to give it. And I'm probably going to do it as a 2-gram bolus up front. That's what TCC is doing, and it's what the military has been doing for quite a while. Now, if I'm confident it's an isolated, mild to moderate TBI, and I'm in the emergency department, and see a positive CT, 
I'm going to again give it, and I'm going to do it as a two-gram bolus. However, if I'm in the field and I don't have my pocket CT function going on my tricorder, I don't see any signs of non-brain bleeding, then I'm probably going to hold off on it until I get some more evidence of its benefit in this population. Well, why hold off in those isolated TBIs before seeing CT evidence? Because of that small increase in adverse events in this trial. Now, if there's no ICH, then there's no potential for benefit, yet all of the potential for risk. So once I've seen blood on the CT, or I think there is some other major bleeding going on, then I'll give it as long as I can get it in before two hours. Finally, I would really, really like to see a study powered to detect, say, a 2% 28-day mortality difference between the bolus dosing and placebo. The single bolus is certainly more convenient to give, and it's just one less thing for my in-hospital colleagues to worry about. And finally, figure two in this paper really makes me think the two-gram bolus is where the money is. Well, I hope y'all will all read this paper. Not that I would ever violate copyright, but if you really want to read it and you don't have access, drop me a note. I don't know, maybe I'll just read it to you over the phone or maybe get you the information some other way. Guys, thanks for listening. Take care, y'all. Yeah, so a couple of things. Let's go backwards a little bit. Um, I I could hear everybody and I could see everybody. I just wasn't here. So I heard the questions specifically about GCS. So I wanted to talk a lot about GCS, actually. So um, let's go back one step further. So for this particular trial, I had the uh, opportunity to work with Dr. Mohamed Daya, who is the um, works at OHSU, Oregon Health Sciences University. He's also the the uh, EMS medical excuse me, director for uh, Tualatin Valley Fire Rescue and a number of other ones. So he and I actually worked together and put together the entire training program for all the rock sites that were participating in this TBI uh, study. So that was really cool to get to do that. Um, and learn. I learned so much about training. I mean, I thought I knew about training, but when you're training people from different countries, boy, you learn a lot. So, so that was one thing that was very cool. The one thing we did not anticipate, and it's kind of like um, I liken it to another another issue that – so we rolled out um, some active shooter training a couple of years ago at my agency, and we were super focused on rescue task force, blah, 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 right? And what we didn't anticipate was that th- we should probably work on some of the basic stuff first, like medical branch and setting up some of that stuff, and then rolling into um, – uh, rescue task force. Well, let's go back to TXA and TBI. You know, the enrollment criteria was pretty straightforward. GCS less than 12. And they had to have a blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, there wasn't that much. You got to, you know, we got to watch out for pregnancy, prisoners and pediatrics, the usual P's. But the one thing we did not count on was the fact that people struggled so much. And this wasn't just my people. This was when I say people, I'm saying people, people in the, all the paramedics, that were participating in the study struggled with GCS. And so one of the things that we did was we had to regroup everybody, get them back in the classroom. And we literally had to spend two hours talking about GCS. And you might think to yourself that that is ridiculous, but I guarantee you 
Because I taught, if you've ever done a re, uh, Flight Jed review course where I was there teaching, um, there's a part in the trauma section where we actually talk about GCS. And um, we don't we don't know how to properly do GCS, I promise you. We are good at exactly three GCSs. And this was done, this, was, this is not me just saying that. This was a study that Dr. Brian Bledsoe did out of Las Vegas a few years ago. And um, you can actually find these videos on YouTube. But we are good at exactly three GCSs. Let's see if you can guess what they are. Throw them in the comments. What what GCS scores do you think paramedics and EMS providers are good at figuring? There are three of them. I will give you the two that are easy. Three and 15. We can nail those all day long. But you got to remember in this study, what was the magic number, Dr. Jarvis? Do you remember? Oh, man. Throw me under the bus and make it obvious that I haven't read this paper in a while. No, I'll just tell you. it It was 12, right? It had to, for this study to be enrolled, the criteria was a 12, 12 or less. So let's see, 15, three or less than eight. Now that's close, Nick. Very good. I'll just tell you, we can do 15, three and 14 all day long. If you do anything else, and I, I guarantee you, I would stake my name on it. You go on YouTube, find these videos that Dr. Brian Bledsoe did. Just Google Brian Bledsoe GCS videos. You'll find them. And you put a room of 20 paramedics, you will get 15 different answers of what somebody's GCS is because I saw it for myself. So this was a huge deal because I don't know if you know a lot about research, but let me tell you, if you enroll the wrong people, how does that go over, Dr. Jarvis? It's pretty frustrating. Yeah. You don't want the wrong- Lots of problems. Yeah. You don't want- to enroll the wrong people in your study. So we literally had to do a hard stop, a hard reset, do some training. And then finally, what we ended up doing, and this is so simple, this is all, was almost like a, a PDSA cycle that we did, right? Plan, do, study, act. We tried to figure out how can we sort of lessen that cognitive load on paramedics in the moment when we're trying to decide, oh, just by the way, there's a million other things going on with these patients. But how do we get them to do that? Well, we ended up printing a card that had GCS numbers on it and the explanations for each of those. And then we never had a problem after that. So people thought they knew, but in the moment they didn't. And so we were enrolling inappropriate patients. So um, it was a really interesting um, sort of process that we went through to make sure we were putting the right people in. That's uh, that is good stuff. So one of the things that I want to point out is uh, I think we have to thank the white tiger himself, uh, Dr. Jason. Well, yeah. yeah. So I really appreciate him coming up, sitting down with me and having that conversation with us. And I am, uh, he texted me. Oh, did he? Were you watching? He, he was, it sounds like. And his army medics were giving him shit. Well, they should. And, uh, Oh, they definitely seem to be giving him shit about his attire as they were giving him lots of screenshots. Oh, that is outstanding. <laughs> that so is strong work, y'all. I appreciate you giving uh, Pickett lots of shit. If they, want, if they want the actual video, I mean, we'll sell it to them pretty cheap. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, let's see. Um Let's kind of go over what I think the bottom line is on TXA and TBI, and then we'll talk TXA in general. Can I just say one thing, though? Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, I'm super disappointed that this study didn't turn out different. 
because uh, there one was a lot of work that a lot of people did. When the abstract came out, we thought we were good to go. We, we finally thought there was something we're going to be able to do for TBI. And I, I don't think that's completely lost, but it's not as good as it was, I thought it was going to be. So I'm super bummed. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm, I want to go back and look at a question that Nick uh, posted. And he said his yeah. trauma docs don't want them given TXA in the field because their typical response time is under 20 minutes. And was wondering if I saw – now, he actually asked this question before we had gone in yeah. and yeah. talked about that question – this paper in particular, but was wondering if I saw anything that would change, uh, specifically change their opinions. And I doubt it. Um, I, you know, I, this is kind of like the people who think that ketamine is a horrible drug for whatever the situation is. I don't think evidence is necessarily going to change their minds. Um, particularly this study, if they don't, if their concern is, well, your average transport time is 20 minutes, therefore it doesn't matter. Well, I think that's a horrible argument. Um, As my buddy Rimley always likes to say, if you look at an average, on average, the entire population has one ovary and one testicle. Ovaries, ovaries. (laughs) Uh, Averages just don't tell you all that much. So an average transport time means you're going to have some long transport times and some short transport times. And if you have a three-minute time from injury to arrival at the trauma center, yeah, it's probably not going to make much of a difference. But what we did see is the sooner in the other studies, so CRASH-2 in particular, we saw the sooner you give the drug, the better the impact. um, impact. Um, And if you look at figure one in this study, which was looking at 28-day mortality and looking at the difference um, between the bolus, two-gram bolus dose in both placebo and maintenance, there was a split, and it occurred really rapidly if you give it early. So I think that it does, it would be beneficial. The question is, is it beneficial in TBIs in any case, regardless what your transport is? And unfortunately, we just don't have great literature making that point. We now have two trials, CRASH-3 and this study, that showed no overall benefit. Both of those studies showed some benefit in subgroups. Crash three, in order to be enrolled in the study, you had to have blood on your CT scan. It was a hospital-based study, so they could do that. And they found that if there was very limited damage, TXA didn't make a difference, which no shit. If you sprain your ankle and you get TXA, TXA is probably not going to help. You're going to do fine no matter what. And if you had a head full of blood, as, you know, Pickett said in the interview, the horse is already out of the barn. You're already herniating. You're not going to stop that process. But Crash 3 showed those who had a moderate um, brain injury actually had improvement. That just wasn't what their overall primary outcome was. This study looked at functional neurologic outcome at six months and didn't see a difference But a large proportion of the patients in this study ended up having no blood in their brain. Mm -hmm. So we don't have CT scans in the field yet. So (laughs) for the most part, um, certainly we haven't found anything useful to do with them. Let me put it that way. Um, 
if the majority of these patients don't have blood on the brain, then there's no benefit to TXA at all. When they looked at just those patients that did have blood on the brain, they did see a difference between bolus and both placebo and maintenance in 28-day mortality. Yeah. Now, Nick asked a question about uh, the number needed to treat. So um, thank you for uh, to Mike for rescuing me here. I had some time to go back and, and look this up and do some calculations. So as a reminder, number needed to treat is how many patients you have to treat with a given therapy to prevent one outcome. In this case, let's say the outcome is 28-day mortality. So you die within 28 days. Yeah. The number needed to treat is 100 divided by the absolute risk reduction, which is just the difference in the two arms. And if you look at this group, 28-day mortality, in the group that had blood on their brain, it was about 9% difference. And that translates to a number needed to treat of 11. Hmm. That's a decent number needed to yeah, treat. That's not bad. The challenge is how do you identify those patients with blood on the CT? Right. Turns out it's not by GCS. No, no. Yeah. And there was another question on here about using Pulsera and the FaceTime feature to maybe increase the sensitivity, if you will, or specificity is probably a better term for determining whether there's blood um, in patients. I actually like using Pulsera and I liked using FaceTime. I thought it was helpful. Um, we continue to use FaceTime. I used it just the, this was a first. Um, it was kind of cool. I got a medical control call and there is an elderly gentleman who's afraid to go to the hospital because, you know, the situation. Right. And uh, he had an, uh, a ventral hernia that he was normally able to reduce on his own, but he couldn't. And he called EMS and was hoping EMS could reduce it. So they'd never done it. They called me, we FaceTimed and I walked him through how to push the jelly back into the the bun, if you will. Um, and it was great. It worked fine, and he didn't have to go to the hospital. So I'm a big believer in FaceTime for that. The challenge is when the patient is in front of me, I'm pretty damn bad at telling when there's blood on the scan, too. Now, if their their pupils are non-reactive, okay, there's going to be blood on the scan, but everybody can pick that up. And if you go back to crash three, horse out of the barn, it ain't going to help in those. No matter what, yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let's see. Um, there was a few things I want to talk about just real quick. So, uh, you know, we mentioned in there that this was an EFIC, so exception from informed consent. Yeah. And, you know, that's just it. Those are tough to get through. Um, there is so much community consultation that needs to happen. Um, I keep looking at my other camera. That's not working. I'm having to use my like onboard, like, crappy camera for some reason. So I, that's what I troubleshooted. So hello down there, this little 480p camera. Um, rather the thing than that is awesome about this is uh, I think so this terrible. is a testament to both of us, our ability to, uh, or lack of ability to tap dance as yeah. we try to overcome technical difficulties. It's yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. Um, but anyway, great, Mike. Yeah, well, you know, so exception from informed consent, right? And one of the things that was important to remember was that, you know, we are we are going to be providing a treatment for these patients, and they cannot tell us that it's okay to do that, right? I mean, GCS less than 12, I should say 12 or less, and let's not go there. So 12 or less, um, 
but many times these patients were either subsequently intubated or for whatever reason just had that altered mental status, whether it was blood on the brain or not. More more than most likely, a lot of times, another issue that we had was that a lot of these patients were intoxicated, right? Severely intoxicated. So um, it was a real challenge to sort of navigate that. Uh, and then finally, just the last other little piece there was that that um, the packaging that this stuff came in. So <clears throat> we had a uh, cardboard tube, probably about a foot long, probably five, six inches around. And then you had to pull out the stuff while you were doing it, right? And so the TXA, you had to reconstitute it, put it into a bag, do all the stuff. And so there were a, a lot of patients that probably, I don't know, could have been enrolled that I don't want to call it a miss, but maybe, you know, the crews couldn't figure out the complex, um, you know, reconstitution process in the moment while they're trying to innovate somebody, right, or whatever it happens to be. So that was an interesting thing that we had to work through as well. Um, and then let's see here. I noticed that my buddy Ed Palmer was watching this. So I don't know if this is my Ed Palmer or if there's 50 of them, which is possible. But he was working with us at the time, so he could probably chime in on some of that stuff. But it was just a really interesting study from, you know, obviously from a result standpoint, it wasn't really what we were thinking or hoping for. And then just working through all the all the little steps as it was. If you were if you were involved in this trial and you're watching, throw something in the comments there. I would love to hear your your thoughts and opinions. But um but yeah, it was pretty interesting. Super, super bummed that uh, it wasn't the end all, the be all, the TBI, because like I mentioned, when the abstract came out, we were pretty hopeful that this was going to yeah. be a real thing. And, uh, and we're actually putting TXA for TBI in our protocols uh, this year, uh, two gram IV push, two gram uh, bolus. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, we're still working on the final pieces of that. I don't know. Yeah. So, Michael, let me ask you this. What? Uh, so I think the literature, the literature based support for TXA and TBI is not there. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, two studies now, both well done. Just the best benefit we can get is a hint. And it's both in subgroup analyses. So I think that there is some information there for future studies. The thing I'm particularly interested about is this difference in dosing. Because, again, if you go back to figure one, I, I really like that figure. It really looks like a signal to me that there is a difference in how you give it. So the two-gram bolus seemed to have a much lower mortality. Well, I can't really say that because the confidence intervals overlapped. Um, a lower mortality yeah. suggestion than the bolus or the bolus plus infusion and the placebo. And if you look at, say, CRASH-3, they only did the Bolus Plus, actually all of the other studies, um, CRASH-2 and CRASH-3. Well, let me just stick to CRASH-2 and CRASH-3. Um, they weren't using a two-gram bolus. So yeah. I'm really curious what would have happened had they done that. Yeah. So I think there are two issues here. One is, does it have a benefit in TBI uh, in any way, shape, or form? And I think the benefit, if it's going to be there, is going to be with the two-gram. So it would be nice if we could do this with a larger group because I think with a larger group, there would have been a 28-day mortality benefit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we had less than, I was going to say, I think we had, there was less than 1,000. Was it nine, nine something, 998, 99, something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was, it was really powered for a different outcome. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's one big thing. Now, the other issue is 
when do you use TXA? So we still have it in our protocols for massive hemorrhage. And CRASH-2 didn't just magically go away. It's still showing a benefit. So I don't see anything that says TBI and, so let's say you have mixed trauma, polytrauma. You got a brain and you have a belly bleed. Mm -hmm. I think you should give TXA. Yeah, agree. Anything in this that says you should um, not use it. Um, So absolutely use it. I think I'm really intrigued because I think there would probably be more of a benefit with a two gram bolus as opposed to the way we're currently giving it now. Unfortunately, that's just pure me pulling it out of my butt and guessing. Um, I just haven't seen the literature for that, and I'd like to. On behalf of Dr. Jeff Jarvis, Mike Verkest, you've been watching a live episode of the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast. We're going to get the actual podcast out uh, probably this week. There'll be an edited version of this particular broadcast on YouTube probably by the end of the weekend. So, again, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Have a great weekend. And don't forget, real quick, join Dr. Sani and I tomorrow night. We're going to talk about the first draft of the DEA rules that are, have come out thanks to that rule that we all got passed a couple of years ago called patient access to emergency medication. So again, on behalf of Dr. Jeff Jarvis, Mike Verkest, you've been watching the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast live on Facebook, and we will talk to you guys soon. Take care, guys. We'll see you. You've been listening to the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast, a proud member of the Flight Bridge Ed podcast family and a fire dog production. Visit flightbridgeed.com for more information. Flight Bridge Ed live and online courses are even better now that they're powered by iSimulate. With Reality360 providing powerful monitor and ventilator simulations, students don't have to imagine anymore, they can engage. Now, with the brand new CTGI module, students can train with highly advanced and realistic fetal heart rate simulations. Just another example of FlightBridge Ed and iSimulate being your partner in discovery. Check out iSimulate.com for more information.